0: people
1: need
0: ordering 12 rules hello <laughs> <laughs> i love the impression
1: hello welcome to 12 rules of what uh my name's alex and i'm as ever joined by sam hello so today we don't actually have a guest in fact my guest is you a listener, no, my guest. <laughs> <is Tom. laughs> we should do uh, that
0: sometime. We should just like ask questions in the podcast, and then just leave a massive gap for people to like think their own thoughts about the question, and then you know do another one. Yeah, oh, like, like Dora the Explorer. That's a reference. I, I'm not. I'm not entirely okay with you. Not uh, not
1: okay with Dora and her adventures.
0: I know, I know. I know broadly who Dora is, but I don't know what the connection is to asking questions and not getting giving the answers. Uh, um.
1: That one, like that, she does in the to, show to teach children like, oh. like colors and shapes. She goes, "Look at the red thing or whatever." Right, and then she's like, "Yeah, yeah, what, what is this red yeah, thing?" Yeah.
0: I mean, we could do the same thing, but like, <laughs> identify the fascist thing. Ident- <laughs> 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 um, identify the imminent But we're so would so be serious. like
1: a, it'd be like a speech from uh, a speech from uh, uh, JFK, a speech from um, RFK, and then a speech from Hitler. It's like Bitcoin's of... fascist. <laughs> and they're all shot, you know, so it's a the theme right there. Yeah, some of the one of them more endogenously shot than the other ones.
0: <laughs> okay. Unless, I mean the
1: JFK shot himself. It's a wild conspiracy theory, and I I'm fair to back it. So um we'd have a guest today. I'm gonna to be talking to Sam about uh his new project, uh series that he's producing on collapse. And it's going to be more, from my understanding, it's going to be more expansive than just collapse on the far right or far right co- conceptions of collapse. But it will like kind of think through different ways of thinking about societal collapse and things like this. And so what I want to do is, I suppose, introduce the project, um, discuss a bit about apocalypse and collapse, and also because we're a podcast about the far right, or at least these main episodes are, um, talk about how apocalyptic thinking or kind of Collapseology exists on the far right in what ways it exists as well, um and I guess I suppose when people think about collapse, I suppose it, people engage with it in different ways. And the way I engage with it is kind of a perv- per- pervading layer of pessimism about everything that happens, about every political thing I do, even this podcast. um That none of it is going to really matter, or we've already run out of time and this uh, thing is inevitable. And so you feel it when, for example, at least I feel it when, uh, for example, COP26 happened and there was a big COP26 coalition and I couldn't shake the feeling that none of the kind of big events, the big marches, the People's Forum or whatever happened really actually mattered that much because it was all, everything bad has already been set in stone, or at least there is nothing we can do to change it from happening. And so I just wanted to ask, how do you kind of conceptualize collapse? Do you see it as a a big kind of day after tomorrow style unravelling of everything very physically? Or um, is it more a kind of a slow process of degradation in which everything gets more militarized, everything gets worse and worse and worse and worse until we end up in some kind of um, children of man style uh, boring dystopia?
0: Yeah. I think that's a that's a really good place to begin. Um, to, to the credit of the people who are organising the um, COP twenty six kind of uh, protests, they were pretty explicit about this. There was um, one of the taglines, one of the slogans was, "This march will fail. This movement won't." I guess you're kind of disputing the second part of that, right? You're saying, "Well, maybe the movement will fail as a whole as well." Which is definitely a possibility. Um, I don't know how I see, uh, understand, collapse yet, um, but I can tell you what the range of views is. Um, what you're of a mini literature review, if you will, um, what do people think about this stuff at the moment? And there are a bunch of different ways in which collapse is being conceptualised, many of which are strongly associated with themes and tendencies on uh, the right or the far right. So there are probably three big um, theorists of collapse that are kind of really worth paying attention to, um, not because they're particularly truthful, um or correct but because they inform so much of the collapse understanding uh that we have today as it stretches back even to the you know ancient civilizations in fact particularly rome particularly uh egypt so and, the, and, and they are just people who people have probably heard of edward gibbon um who wrote the F- decline and fall of the roman empire um oswald spengler who writes the decline of the west and then um arnold J tomby uh uh, who is the uh, grandfather of Polyton B, the Guardian columnist, uh, it's a real real regression to the mean there. And uh, he writes a thing called um, A Study of History, which is a kind of comparative history of, I think, 25, 26 possible different civilizations, of which eight survive, um, of which only one is truly creative and genius. He writes this in the 1950s, no prizes for guessing that the one that is truly creative and genius is still alive, is white western civilization in europe so you know and his, his his conception of collapse is that there are elites in societies uh, which are creative and then there are kind of um stubborn or stupid or kind of um, passive majorities in society and what happens in collapsing societies is that the um the kind of way of the dominant majority this kind of passive group of people who are essentially weak essentially need to be led and so on they gain a certain upper hand in um the control of society. And what this means is that over the long term, uh, society stultifies and then it you know, rigidifies um, and ultimately uh, fragments, collapses, and so on. So it's a very uh, elitist understanding of how society operates. I think it's basically completely false. Um, and it doesn't work as a kind of history, a theory of, of, of collapse. But the reason why I'm mentioning it is not because it's true, obviously, but because it informs so much of what collapse thinking is about. If we go back to your example of COP26. Of uh, there, there was a very strange interview with Boris Johnson, um, Mm. who uh, where he says one of many strange interviews. One of many strange interviews with Boris Johnson, but but this one particularly strange because it it said he said in it when you think about the Roman Empire, they thought it was impossible for them to collapse, and yet. They did. Now, of course, this is a this is a thing that people don't uh, talk about very often in mainstream centrist politics. After Blair, right? Blair was never like it's the fall of the Roman Empire. You know, this is just not a kind of thing that like gets admitted into um, the broad kind of canon of 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 British centrist politics um, for relatively good reasons. Of course, Johnson is 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 very keen on these kind of classical references, so it's no surprise that he would do it. But what's important is that what he said after that. Was that the reason why the Roman Empire collapsed was because of mass migrations. Now, That's not even remotely a plausible theory for why the Roman Empire actually collapsed. And so the theorization of collapse is used in that particular example really clearly, but across the board for particular purposes by um, nefarious interests, reactionaries, and so on. So the utilization of collapse as a kind of it's kind of a live idea um, becomes, yeah, politically very, very salient, very kind of directly so. There are plenty of other theorists of collapse, so it's not just reactionaries. In the contemporary period, there are there are a few that are worth kind of talking about in depth. Uh, one's called Peter Turchin, who does massive comparative work across you know um, huge number of disciplines uh, that looks at tendencies within the organisation of society, levels of class conflict, inequality, um, information processing. I've Actually, forgotten the fourth parameter, but he looks at these kind of different. Um, uh, parameters in, in order to understand the ways in which, like uh, things like demographic structural theory and um, common feeling, uh, abyssia uh, or sibia, sorry, rather, um, are transformative of, of society and how their waxing and waning correlates with periods of, of collapse and social destruction. Um, the other person that you might kind of come across is, is, is Josie Tainter, who uh, wrote a book called The Class of Complex Societies, it's This is a very important book, uh, in which he basically theorizes that societies are problem-solving systems. That is, they solve problems uh, that their, their participants encounter or the society as a whole encounters, and that's kind of an important distinction. Is it for everyone that problems exist? Is it for just like particular class fractions, particular groups in society? And so he talks about um, societies solving certain kinds of problems and the way they do this is normally by kind of lathering on a further layer of social complexity. They build, a, they develop institution, they develop um, a system of codes, laws, and so on, or they develop some sort of technology. But the technology requires maintenance. The bureaucracy requires maintenance. The system of laws requires maintenance. And as society becomes more and more complex, maintenance costs, that is just like the kind of basic reproduction of the society, takes up more and more and more and more and more and more, and more of the social hull of the social produce that it, it can it can um it can put out and this is particularly problematic because he also identifies another trend which is what's called energy return on investment energy return on investment is where um, the amount of energy you put in something measured normally in calories that's how energy is normally measured so or joules um, energy is put into a system in order to extract energy you, you have to construct an oil well to dig in, to dig oil you have to um, Feed the miners and like get them to dig mine out of the ground in order to get coal. Right, so energy goes in, lots more energy comes out, and so you can think kind of get the ratio of these two things. In the early oil drilling period in Texas and um, in in the United States, the ratio was over hundred to one. Right, so you would you would put in one joule of energy, and for that one joule, you get out a hundred joules. So that huge return on investment. these are mass, massive, massive profit margins if you think about them in terms of profits tens of thousands of percent profit. What's happened in the last few decades, basically, since that kind of peak, is it's gone down from 100 to 1, to 40 to 1, 30 to 1, 10 to 1, and so on. So the shale oil, which is the kind of the big um, last hurrah of US oil drilling in the northwest um, area of the US mostly, shale oil... It is, this the, is, this, is this fracking. Yeah. Shale, and, and, and and what's more convincing about this is that we write about this in the Ecofascist book. We write about the ways in which... Um, the securitization of those uh, shale oil um, pieces of infrastructure have been, has been taken over as a kind of a piece of, like, kind of national fixation by groups like the Three Percenters um, and so on. Um, defense of that against uh, indigenous groups, largely, um, and other leftist groups, which which want to preserve um, the indigenous groups' uh, right to the land, um, and this has been kind of opposed by the, uh, the right-wing militias. We talk about this in the UK Fashion book in 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 the in the. the Fourth chapter, I think. Anyway, so the um, this shale oil, the ratio of input to output, is about 1 to 1.7. So you're kind of getting more energy back than you're putting in, but actually it's not that substantial. And this just kind of goes on and on and on and on. And eventually you'll get to the point where like it's not worth drilling energy out of the soil or getting energy out of the world just because the ratio doesn't make sense anymore. Um, renewable energy and so on, all these kind of things can compensate for this to some extent. It's not clear how much they can compensate for it. It's not clear to what extent those things will be kind of viable as uh, large-scale systems. But what happens then, because the energy source is going down, we've already made all these kind of layers of maintenance cost, all these layers of complexity in society. As those start to unravel, it's not just that we get the tendency you were talking about a moment ago, militarization. That is very important. It's also that we get forms of kind of new spaces of freedom opening up. So bureaucracies collapse, People are um, made more free in that kind of the double tragic sense that uh, Marxism is very keen on, right? Like um, the rich, like the poor, are free to sleep under the bridges of Paris. Right? It's a very famous line. Uh, is that capitalism affords people a kind of a formal freedom, um, but at the same time constricts their actually ability to reproduce themselves outside of the wage relation. So there's a kind of a um, uh, a new form of freedom that might be might emerge from collapse. That is the freedom from. These layers of social complexity that have more or less determined people's lives uh, for 200 years or so. Or, and at the same time, a a kind of freedom from care, a freedom from being attended to, a freedom from uh, mattering to any of the large scale social organizations as they kind of retreat and retreat and retreat and retreat. So it's a very ambivalent civilization, sorry, ambivalent situation. Um, In the late Roman period, there's lots of evidence that people became most of whom people in the Roman Empire, actually their living standards improved. The elite had a terrible time, but the rest of their living standards improved because they were no longer taxed by the Romans, because they were no longer like armies coming around every now and again to just like kind of maraud through their, their area. Like, it just didn't happen anymore. So um, people's living standards actually quite substantially improved. Um, the other thing that happened is that people were able to um, grow more diverse crops um, because the, because there weren't landowners who were like, I need you to grow this so I can sell it on the market and make a healthy profit. So the, these are all kind of the complex dynamics. I don't expect many of the upsides to be present this time around, just because living in a six degrees hotter world isn't that much better for anyone. Like it's much worse for everyone. Um, so I think that the situation today is, is much more complex and we shouldn't be sanguine about collapse, but we also shouldn't under, think of it strictly as a kind of a negative process of Further, further, further militarization, domination, repression, children of men, disaster, terrible stuff. I don't think that's entirely fair story either.
1: And you don't think there's a massive tidal wave it's going to um, knock down the Statue of Liberty? I, 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 I very much doubt that. Okay. Um, I mean, I think my, my my go-to example of COP26 and my go-to reference is quite indicative of my thinking about um, apocalypse, or collapse, and that. I essentially think more my thinking results around ecological... Collapse or degradation, sudden degradation, environmental disasters, same, which yeah. are like already happening. We have to acknowledge that you know, collapsing. The world is already collapsing in many ways, and it will just get worse, and will move around the globe at various kind of um, uneven kind of speeds. Um, of course, on the far right, um, they think of collapse in a much diff- more different way. And I'm not sure how, whether you're going to get much into it in in the series, the collapse series. That's the plan, yeah. Sure. Okay, great. Um, but I think obviously the main collapse for them is uh, the the collapse of the white race, a racial collapse, and which has has been kind of the an ongoing, uh, I suppose, tendency uh, within the far right and in, in, within the within the centre since the kind of uh, kind of the height of or the beginnings of colonial power and the holding of colonial territories in other parts of the world i wondered if you could like tease out the relationship between the far right kind of make between environmental collapse and degradation of um ra- the races or the racial system which they have constructed
0: and it's a very generous question uh because we of course wrote a chapter about this in the Ecofashion fashion book this is, okay. what I mean, okay, let's... is about so why don't you answer the <laughs> question alex because you write that chapter. i had a as specific well. <laughs>
1: question about uh about uh about plugging the book specifically, but you'll keep bringing it back into it. We need to be more subtle about this. Is this what you're trying to? Do? You're trying to plug the book. I didn't actually notice. I'm not trying to plug the book. I'm trying to plug your series. Okay, <laughs> but it just so happens that a lot of our book, we you know, this is common ground for us. So we just don't yeah, need to where. Sure. Uh, Let's like, just not reference the book all the time.
0: Okay, I I, I won't do it again explicitly. But if you're listening, do go and buy the book. It's out February the seventh, twenty twenty-two. I just I, I just want to
1: one thing because it's been
0: kind of troubling me. Or kind of uh, you know something i've been thinking about a lot recently when we first started writing the eco book which was um we first started thinking about it in late 2019 right we put we kind of started writing it uh basically exactly as the pandemic was taking off uh in january 2020 so and at that time i would have said that i thought something like what i would discover as an eco-fascist future was something like 60 percent likely Mm. And I think since writing the book, my my assessment of that risk has gone down. Now things have changed in the world, of course. there been lots of transformations, but I, I I wonder if you if you've had like a similar kind of movement in your in your uh, risk assessment of that particular future.
1: I think, I think, I mean, I, I started out this. Episode talking about like everything kind of overlaying with a layer of pessimism about change and things like that. And that is still true. Like, you know, as much as I can rationalize arguments and look at movements that are happening and think this is seems quite hopeful, there's kind of a it's much, I think it's a deeper feeling of like, you know, black pill doom, you know, not all the time and not, you know, constantly, but it's still kind of there every so mm-hmm. often. Having said that, you see things like um, the recent uh, strikes uh, in America and the kind of union activism here as well. Um, Specifically, I think kind of the Kellogg strike, which just concluded a couple of days ago, a day ago, in in favour of the workers. And the feeling that there's a kind of opening up of other possibilities, that you were kind of trapped. In the last few years, you've been kind of trapped in this kind of... uh, Whirlpool of kind of um, two bad options, Uh, and oftentimes I think with, uh, for example, with Brexit, there's a kind of there was a the the, the whole country was split between uh, a leave side and a remain side. Equal, both were equally dissatisfying, equally kind of bad and terrible and uninspiring options, and there was no other option outside of that. There was no rethinking about Fortress Europe. There was nothing. It was that was the division. And it seems like now those kind of debates have been left aside to some extent. There is an there is a path for a new kind of for a different proposition of politics. And as much as, for example, the mutual aid groups that kind of sprung up in the, around the country did get end up getting co opted and blunted, as they as they inevitably would, that was a kind of impulse. It wasn't really a movement necessarily, it was kind of a political impulse or a societal impulse for care. Um, was, for me, quite an encouraging one. Um, it kind of reformulated the balance of power. There was not like a kind of ever authoritarian state that was clamping down, although the state is getting more authoritarian, and then that was it. There was a state, and then there was the people that he was acting upon. There was the constituency of the whole country. There was a state, and then there was a bunch of other interests which are kind of... Uh, that are... Um, struggling for expression and I think that's a much better way of thinking about things as well like um, at least I found it much more helpful So I
0: think societies that have been shredded by neoliberalism um, this Brexit and uh, maybe from Trump are kind of really salient examples because controlling those societies about what politics is is often exerted through the capacity to force people to make a decision to which they are not party to setting the terms. Right, People can't make set the terms of the overall binary, they're forced to choose with them, and yet they are like forced to make a decision. You're either for Trump or you're against Trump. You're either for Brexit or you're against Brexit. And there's a kind of a way in which the like domination is like exerted through the capacity to set the terms of those debates. Um, well, not it's to- not even
1: just that you, if you're against Trump, it's not just that binary. It's also if you're against Trump, then you're also pro- Neoliberal um, social welfare. Yeah, so 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 there's kind of a cascading effect, right?
0: So in some ways, like the maybe to nuance my point in light of what you just said, like the the the, the domination is exerted through the capacity to organise the hierarchy of decisions. So that the most important decision to make is whether or not you're for or against Trump, and then from that everything follows. Right, so it's it, it's a way of like organizing what is the kind of the, the fundamental distinction in society: people who are for or against Trump, people who are for or against Brexit, as if that was determinative of like everything else, rather than being more fundamental social distinctions. Because the reason why this is such a powerful thing to be able to do is because it, it obscures uh, all the different kinds of ways in which social differentiation, social conflict, is actually uh, actually works and leads to a situation in which. Being for or against lockdown, right? For or against this, it becomes a kind of a way of like uh, sorting out everything about the world, um, and therefore reduces the capacity of actual politics, which is a long and boring process, uh, uh, boring through hard boards, as Weber once said, right? Like the, um, you know, it reduces that process of, of, of engagement um, mutually. I'm sounding like a liberal now. Like, kind of, what I want is like a strong civil society because that is what I want. But I also want (laughs) that civil society to essentially have a communist revolution. um, That's collapse.
1: How did the far right uh, conceptualise apocalypse or collapse, and how did it link to environmental collapse, which is actually the real collapse that's happening?
0: Okay, so so let me um, let me uh, say something kind of linking things. First is that this um, capacity. Of society to sustain or not sustain a civil society where like debate happens, public sphere happens, is one of the major ways in which societies encountering complexity try and solve for that complexity, right? They try and like develop an institution, a set of like spaces within society that allows for um, conflicts to be uh, mediated, uh, resolved, and so on. And that is all very much the same kind of thing that. Uh, Tainter is talking about in his theory of collapse. So that the, the the sudden disappearance of the, of the public sphere in neoliberalism, the, the shredding of the demos, right, is a is kind of a sign of a, a, a sense making institution in society uh, dissolving very rapidly. And that, that's why it's kind of uh, possible to consider these things in light of kind of a broader broader transformation of, uh, uh, towards collapse. The other way in which it's important is that it is absolutely true. And well, when, when it's important to the to the question of how the far right can see of collapse, is that it is absolutely true that um no one was polled on the question of whether or not there should be mass migration, right? Uh, simply because that is not the kind of which is one of their main claims, like we were never asked and so on. This is a, a patriotic alternative, um like kind of uh, talking point. Um that's kind of true. Uh, simply because that is not the kind of decision that is uh, made by civil society anymore. It's made by um, technocrats uh, of of one description or another. Right. So the um, uh, the 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 fact that people are no longer able to exert, in any meaningful sense, control over how the society operates um, around important questions um, like how should wealth be distributed in society, um, who should citing a system, and so on. All, all these things are have been taken away from people. And the way that incapacity to do anything gets mediated on the far right is around apocalyptic narratives where we're all doomed all there is left terrorism violence destruction and so on so it's it's, it's the it's the kind of the um the, the the barrier right that um that not having a kind of a public sphere that functions uh puts up means that means people turn to um to towards kind of uh yeah terrorism maybe that's kind of a bit of excuse making on my part for like why there is this terrorist or kind of bringing everything back to the same uh, fundamental course, but I think it's basically accurate. Uh, there are no political institutions which can exert anything other than the most kind of like uh, uh, tedious and staid forms of neoliberalism. Um, ergo, there is apocalypticism on the right because it knows it can't affect anything apart from to just like randomly attack people. And there is also apocalypticism on the left because it knows that it has no control over the The um, the levers of of capital, nor over the um, construction of fossil fuel uh, infrastructure. So I think they're they're both they're both very similar in some ways, right? So the 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 other way in which there's a kind of a differentiation between the left and the right responses here, although they both end up in apocalypticism, the way in which there's a kind of differentiation here is around key questions of how the history should be passed, right? How history should be understood, how we should engage with history as it continues to happen, right? History is not just like in the past, obviously. And perhaps the key aspect of of that contested history is the role of um, uh, European colonialism, right, in uh, organising the rest of the world, uh, in like um, uh, attempts to impose its norms on the rest of the world and so on. And that's a process that happens not just um, through the codification of, of, of discipline about bodies, discipline about kind of people's conduct and so on, though those are extremely important. It's also a way in which the idea of a normal environment, a normal nature, is constructed through the colonial project, and I think that's something that um, we talked about in our in our book. This kind of combination of fear and uh, needs to kind of impose ne- um, a kind of a, a kind of a set of norms onto nature, um, and that nature extending both to people and also to environments in various kind of forms. But I think that, that there's much more to say about this, and, and you know about this as well. So you should you should you should tell us. What what do you see is the connection between the colonial project? and contemporary forms of
1: right-wing apocalypticism. So I think right from the start of the colonial project, colonialism, imperialism, there were uh, different discourses around nature, and we kind of go through them in our his- section about history and we've been th- thinking about them a lot. And conceptions of nature are often mostly put to use for to, in the fervorance of colonial, the colonial project, the imperial project. And so indigenous land is untouched by human, human life, in which they mean white civilized human life, and therefore is up for grabs and is therefore can be partitioned off. And therefore the people who are found to live upon it need to be turned into white people and been given property and taught how to do pastoral farming and, and, and such like. There's other forms of nature also like how nature uh, is antagonistic how it's um, unsuited to life. And th- that is the reason why the people who live in that nature are particularly uh, malcontent, particularly uh, troublesome, and why they need to be controlled and why the land needs to, itself needs to be tamed. Um, you know, the reason so many white people are getting sick on the coast of Africa is because the land itself is inherently uh, corrupted, it's bad. And, and therefore, the people themselves are bad too. And we never really have a reckoning of um, just how much that history of colonialism, which lasted a very long time and ended in, you know, historically very recently, uh, how we are still living with those same conceptions of nature, how we're still living with those same structures of, uh, you know, exploitation and profit extraction. Um, and how, I suppose, for me to reckon with uh, reckon with the present, we need to reckon with... Empire. I think it's really important for us to interrogate what kinds of conceptions of nature people are talking about today as well, and how they kind of further entrench uh, um, kind of geopolitical hierarchy or geopolitical exploitation. Um, and I think also these kind of conceptions of nature are only going to entrench as the world becomes more obviously unequal ecologically. So as famines particularly start affecting certain areas, you know, as food insecurity becomes more of a thing in the global South, as you know, or, in you know, in kind of previously colonized territory, and how that those same things are not happening um, in Europe in in necessarily in some parts of America, you know, I mean, obviously, until they do. The link between the racial apocalypse and the ecological ap- apocalypse and the mind of the Far East is intrinsically linked because race and environment is intrinsically linked and has been since colonialism. Um, and since the, since the colonial project. And so we, we see kind of manifestations of this in the way that, for example, um, American fascists justify their presence in on the continent of North America because they were forged in the kind of um, furnace of of European weather and that means that gave them the hardiest constitutions and the most um, kind of daring do and drive in order to um, expand the frontiers of civilization across the untouched continent yeah it's, it's,
0: it's one of my favorite copes of all time um, <laughs> the idea that the uh, uh, you can everyone in the world should be in their natural environment right that's kind of one proposition proposition Simultaneously, white nationalists in America are not in their natural environment. Very obviously, they're not in Europe, where they like their ancestors are from. Um, this is because of some fundamental like get-out clause that they and they alone possess uh, a natural conquering capacity that um, means that they should be uh, kind of everywhere uh, that they they, they, they they can be. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's extraordinary get-out
1: clause. You also see it in kind of the, the discourse, far-right discourse. Around um, white settler colonies in southern Africa, for example, and that the need to go and fight and defend that white settler uh, colony uh, from um, the encroaching, not just um, you know indigenous people, but the of that nature indigenous people. Do you know what I mean? Um, the the kind of black devil kind of troops. Um, so one of the ways we talk about Malthusianism. In
0: the book, I think I've just kind of realized it's probably not entirely satisfactory. So let's—I'm going to say how we say it—and then I'll try and add something onto it. We talk about Malthusianism as, uh, which you've kind of mentioned before, right? Is that Malthusianism is based on a kind of a, a horror at profligacy—people having too many kids—and like you just can't have that many kids if your um, you know, your resource base, your amount of capacity to feed them, is not going to accelerate at the same rate. And you know, he makes a distinction between uh, exponential increase in, in number of people and uh what he assumes falsely would be linear improvements in the the amount of uh, food that can be kind of um yeah provided for them. that's of course not true he misses out you know all the kind of technological stuff about uh you know the green revolution and uh all the kind of yeah, the development of the harbor process uh, the bosch harbor process in the early 1900s um which is intimately uh, which allows for the production of chemical fertilizer but also the production of uh, amongst other things, uh, dynamite—well, not dynamite, but um, explosives—that uh, can be used in the Second World of War. So there's there's a strange interlinked history here between like the relation kind of of war and farming and food and colonialism and so on. There's a very complex story to be told, which I think we tell relatively well in in the book. And then there's a um, there's a flip in contemporary Malthusianism towards not a kind of a lack of culture. So what Malthus says is that. The reason why "quote unquote" civilized people, uh, white settlers, are able to uh, kind of rein in their like insane sexual desires, just like pump out children all the time, is because they are moral, uh, Christianized, and so on. They allowed to they, they're able to kind of uh, restrict the number of children they have. And whereas people, uh, Malthus claims, in other parts of the world, are simply not able to do this, and this causes, including Ireland, for example, and are um, and that this causes um, famines and so on. So. That's Malthus' claim. In some ways he's talking about that, that, that people are people have problems because they are not civilised enough. But in contemporary Malthusianism, there is a uh, an idea that people are actually too civilised, that human society has produced uh, a race of bug men um, who kind of live in the pod, eat the uh, kind of crushed up insects and so on. And that is what kind of life has become. And what is required against that is a kind of heroic masculinist fantasy of... Uh, you know, bygone times, uh, and so on. Hence, uh, a bunch of kind of neo tropes. But I don't think that it's entirely that one has replaced the other. And this goes back to what thing you were saying a moment ago about the blaming of people for natural disasters. As, for example, they uh, appear in um, extreme uh, monsoons, storms, and so on, for example, in, in India, right? So there, there, these weather events will become more and more drastic. People's capacity to deal with them will become more and more more... Um, uh, Strained in in various ways, and one of the kind of dangers, of, for example, the Modi government is that it will uh, increase the degree to which it denies uh, Muslims in India a uh, the, the the care of the state uh, in in these situations. That's one of a real kind of a sharp point at which, like um, developments in the far right and developments in um, the uh, environmental crisis, the the climate break systems breakdown crisis might um, converge, and that's that's kind of a really terrifying example of that. So the way this is mediated in, in the far right in, um, the, in, in the West is normally to say, well these people, you know the problem is there are simply too many of them and they wouldn't be battered around by these monsoons and so on, by these storms, uh, by these earthquakes, tsunamis and so on as happened um, in the Boxing Day uh, tsunami. Right? Th- th- these things wouldn't have happened if they hadn't had so many children, if they hadn't been so profligate if they hadn't if they had what is basically at base, a metaphysical claim. If they'd had a proper relationship to nature, like a proper kind of restrained relationship to nature, if they were civilized, this wouldn't happen to them. And that's of course an absurd claim. But I think that one of the things you've got, uh, or you were kind of touched on there in your in your discussion of kind of the, the geographical unevenness of this, um, the kind of uh, of the climate crisis as it unfolds, is that both these conceptions, both that the West is too civilized and that the um, the uh, global South formerly colonized areas. Um, those are not civilized enough. Uh, these coexist. It's not that one is simply replaced the other, but they 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 do different work in different path justification across the global scale. I think we'll see kind of a, um ever more complex uh, sets of reasoning about whether or not people are too civilized, not similar civilized, and so on, as these uh, events kind of unfold.
1: Okay, so you're getting to something that I wanted to ask you about, which is a question of scale, which we also talk about in the book. I said I wouldn't plug it, but here we go. I suppose we it. <laughs> you a, can't resist it's a killing, <laughs> a killing episode. Um, in that, um, I suppose my, I like to think that my conception of collapse or apocalypse is a kind of planetary one, and to understand it as a kind of a, a, an Earth degradation overall. And the problem with the, the the difficulty with passing on the far right collapse on the far right is that their scales seem to be way off. And all different kinds of scales as well. So you you had the kind of bug man masculinist thing, which is a kind of a a collapse of a a spiritual um, kind of a meta spirituality of the West in a kind of very um, mystical almost way. And you also have the kind of collapse of of the extinction of, um, you know, cool animals associated with nations <laughs> or like the collapse of a, the kind of drying up of a river for example or the, the pollution of a beach or litter, um,
0: littering is like a kind of insane a bugbear of uh lots of very small-minded reactionary organizations which become um quasi-environmental organizations a bit later yeah, on
1: like, like keep britain tidy
0: yeah, which is which is like a what was Keep Britain Tidy originally? It was like an anti-nuclear organization or something. It like, it just, it's like just the kind of mutations of these things It's really
1: extraordinary. So my question is about is about scale. Is how do we kind of is it possible to kind of smush this all into one theory of far right apocalypticism? These these massive scales of mystical spirituality and littering, or do we have to have to inevitably pass this stuff out? Is there a link here? Yes, I think that, that that's a really
0: important question. Um, okay, so. There are a couple of things to say about what is uniquely specific about far-right apocalyptism, to distinguish it from other things. One is that it is deeply involved with racial types. And because racial types are a nonsense idea, um, which do not make any sense at all, uh, not in terms of like, contemporary biology and also not really in terms of like understandings of history or culture, um, because these things don't really make any sense, what you have to do in order to make them try and make sense, to kind of force sense out of them, is endlessly expand their, their domain, endlessly expand their remit. I was thinking earlier that there's a kind of a, a a way in which because because of the because of the tension between not knowing if there's too much civilization or too little civilization, and thinking that maybe that there are both simultaneously, what you're forced to kind of rely on is a completely esoteric notion of what civilization consists in, and what when you've got that esoteric notion, what you can then do is say okay well it's racialized, um, it's not that there are more or less people, civilized people, it's that there are Aryans and there's everyone else. Right, so it becomes a distinction not between the civilized and the uncivilized, but between certain racial types and certain other racial types. And so the the production of these racial types becomes not only the most kind of central, important component of farad apocalypticism, but also becomes almost like fractally complex. So, you know, in this particular case, uh, yes, um, I did some littering. Um, but, you know, I, an Aryan man, would only litter under these circumstances in this particular place, you know, in order to prove this kind of point. Right. So, the, so the, in the same way as you get kind of these um, really complicated arguments in utilitarianism, you know, um, we get kind of the, uh, uh, essentially the, the trolley problem, right? But like kind of uh, the racial trolley problem where like would an Aryan do X, would an Aryan do Y and so on? And because the, the type is basically nonsense, anything can be, projected onto him that allows for more or less anything to kind of um go anything to be seen as good anything to be seen as bad which is of course people will recognize a classic conspiratorial kind of thinking um very familiar from the discussion from like q very familiar from all these other conspiracies where an almost infinitely detailed plan has to be understood to exist somewhere, such that Trump's actions can all fit into it coherently, and so on. So, there's kind of a, there's a kind of a, because of the of the absurdity of the initial idea, a racial type, far apocalypticism, which I will eventually pronounce correctly, is forced to develop a almost infinite level of detail about what it is that the racial type contains, right? Because it's it's trying to legislate for all possible activity. What this means is that nothing is ever really encountered. By which I mean, you never really have to think anything again. You never have to think anything new. All you have to do is to reassert the same kind of thoughts again and again and again and again and again for all new information. It always has to fit within the same kind of racial topography. It always has to fit within the same explanation. doesn't matter what it is. It will go into the explanation because you're able to bend what the explanation is supposed to predict more and more and more and more and more. And And so it's a kind of a... It's a way of like preventing the new from ever really happening, preventing anything new from ever really occurring, and therefore I think in the long term the danger really is that these systems of thinking will become on the far right will become so fixated, sclerotic, rigid, and so on, as they encounter more and more things that seem to go against their 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 ideas, that they will be left only with violence as a kind of solution to these contradictions. Um, and so I think that the, the main thing we have to kind of worry about, or one of the main things we have to kind of worry about is forms of sporadic uh, uh, violence that grows out of attempts attempt to kind of resolve uh, the contradictions between various ideas of racial type uh, inside a,
1: a right-wing apocalypticism. So I've got a friend who, to annoy me, describes herself as an eco-fascist. I mean, I hope it is. <laughs> I hope it is to annoy me. And she follows up this quite incendiary claim um, by saying that she thinks it would be better for nature as the whole, you know that humans every human was kind of wiped off the face of the earth that every human was I don't know whether it was disappeared or you know massacred or killed we didn't really get into specifics because I would just be very annoyed about it and she would keep saying it to annoy me and I think this kind of betrays a there's a kind of general kind of black pilled feeling amongst... Certain people's like, you know, kind of humanity itself is the problem. Humans are the virus. And this is the kind of trope that we've seen. It's not actually XR who said it, it was a, a far right group who was masquerading as XR who made those stickers that, you know, humans are the virus. Um, but it does speak to a certain kind of fatalism about humans and human activity um, that there is no other alternative and that actually the kind of some impact of humanity is uh, death ultimately death and collapse. I wondered how can we, how do we, it's not, I don't think we should like explicitly be challenging my friend because I think it is a joke ultimately. I mean, I hope it's a joke. Um, but how can we think about this kind of humans are the virus uh, meme uh, in a way that is kind of antagonistic and useful to a, to a political project?
0: So h- humans very obviously aren't a virus. Um, the closest analogy I can think of is that humans are a kind of cancer. Um, that is, they're a kind of uh, social, a kind of a biological form um, that will not stop replicating and which siphons off resources, siphons off energy from the rest of the organism. Right? So imagine the earth is kind of a single organism. Um, humans are a kind of a, a thing that's like growing, and growing, and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and demanding more and more and more energy and which refuses to die, refuses to senesce in the way that um, cancer cells refuse to senesce. So I just, you know, on a kind of biological basis, I would say that virus is not the good analogy. Cancer, more like it. That's probably another one that you can think of. It's actually even better.
1: Um, I think my friend wouldn't go with the virus thing. I think she would go for the cancer thing, probably.
0: Yeah. So why am I saying this? Well, I think I think one of the, one of the things is to get one's um, terminology correct, right? Is kind of useful because it it kind of shifts how you're thinking about the thing. There's a there's a really good line from Peter Stadenmeier's work. Uh, who we interviewed on the podcast a while back, and who has endorsed our book. Um, I know,
1: fucking hell, this
0: is shameless. It's absolutely shameless. So that was actually disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm revolted, but I'm impressed. Um, so Peter, Peter Sadenmeyer, <laughs> uh, yeah, very good author. We interviewed him. Uh, he writes that the signal mark of, of what he calls far rightecologism, or, or right, or right wing ecologism, is. Uh, the disintermediation of the social and the natural. What does that mean? It's a bit obscure. Disintermediation means that there used to be a kind of a a separation or a boundary between two things, and it is forcibly made to disappear. So, um, people in cryptocurrencies will talk about the disintermediation of the the seller and the lender, right? There used to be a bank in between these two things, and now there's a blockchain and therefore disintermediation. That is, there was something in the middle and it's evaporated or it's being replaced. The point about the disintermediation of the natural and the cultural is that in fire ecologism, or in farite reactionary thinking about nature, rules of nature are immediately claimed to be rules of society, and rules of society are immediately claimed to be rules of nature, right? They're just as if the two things were exactly equivalent, as if there was nothing particular about humans. And yet, the claim that there should be no humans rests on the exceptionality of humans. Right? So it doesn't make sense for us to apply the same rules as apply would be applied to nature, the same set of ethical standards that applies to nature, to humans. It doesn't make sense to apply the same set of ethical standards we apply to humans, to apply to nature. And yet, so that, on the one hand, we're trying to deny there's, a, there's an exceptionality to humans. On the other hand, we're trying to claim there is an exceptionality to humans. They are uniquely bad, uniquely evil, and so on. And so this whole claim that humans particularly need to be eliminated rests on essentially a contradiction in thinking. Right? On the one hand, humans are exceptional. On the other hand, they're not exceptional at all. Um, that's obviously a philosophical problem, whether or not I just is the kind of the political impetus of it as another matter, I don't know, Don't think it probably does. So the way I would address the kind of political question of it is to say that like many people have said before, like many who were saying again, it doesn't make sense to think of the Anthropocene as a single thing, the Anthropos, the we, the human that has constructed this world in which humans are like the, perhaps the main causative geological agent. Have transformed the planet in in ways that were completely unprecedented. It doesn't make sense to think of of us as as that agent. The other thing I would think, uh, because we are not one unified species, um, we are a set of like abstract social processes, capitalism and so on, which are taking uh, on, utilizing the actions of humans for their furtherance, but which is for which humans are kind of no more than than a kind of a, a pawn. The other thing I would say about that is that there's a If you expand the scope of how you're thinking about it from the domain of the hockey stick, so the hockey stick graph is a very famous graph in in climate change research, right? Which is that it it stretches about, I think, about 1500, maybe even before that. Um, And it's like a basically kind of a flat but very wiggly line um, of temperature, global average mean temperature. And then after about 1950, uh, or thereabouts, just massively takes off. You get kind of a hockey stick shape, kind of just accelerates really quickly into the sky. Um, That is genuinely unprecedented in the whole of the planetary history. That's something that's kind of important to say. Um, but if you expanded that out to the course of four billion years, which is how long the earth has been here, then you would see that there are actually like massive transformations in the earth's biosphere um, that have been affected uh you know at different points. Um the most kind of striking of which is that is is that the first uh, mass extinction, which is basically the oxidization of the atmosphere before carbon dioxide, and then it transforms to oxygen because the bacteria, or a proteon or I don't know exactly what it is, uh, uh, um, a kind of a form of early life develops that can metabolize carbon dioxide and produce oxygen in its place. And this kills, basically it suffocates all the things that we're breathing in carbon dioxide, because it just replaces them with oxygen. And this is this is the biggest yeah. mass death event in the whole of planetary history, yeah. and yet it is absolutely causative of the entire rest of planetary history. And so if we're gonna zoom out, if we're gonna have make claims about what life in general wants, needs, and so on, if we're gonna make claims about that, then we have to address the scale of the entire planet and its entire history, in the space of which humans <laughs> are, although happening very quickly, yes, we are changing the environment faster than this, this, this oxidation event happened, happened over the course of hundreds of thousands of years. Although we are changing it much faster, we are not actually changing it more substantially than other agents did in the past, agents who we would not rebuke. We would not, <laughs> if we were coming to this planet you know, from outer space perhaps three and a half billion years ago, we wouldn't be like, you can't do that. Uh, these oxygen breathing things, they must die. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. At all. Oh, sorry, carbon dioxide breathing, oxygen respiring. So yeah, the, 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 that wouldn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think arguments from nature make any sense because you have to deal with a scale that actually gives you a completely different set of lessons. I have no idea if anyone would find that convincing. Uh, because it seems to me that the the uh, the argument is actually not based on a set of ideas followed through with like logical force. It's based on a, a vibe.
1: <laughs> and you can't argue with vibes. You, de- you definitely cannot argue with vibes. I think that is the one true political fact of our time. Is very much, the vibes yeah. will always win. So we haven't really talked about to- so much about directly about collapse and what we think it might entail and what how we could respond to it. And obviously, it's quite hard to tell what's... It's quite hard to predict what's going to happen. And, I mean, I suppose the best way, me speaking as a historian, someone who thinks historically, um, you know, as opposed to other people who don't think historically at all, um, is <laughs> yeah. that, you know, you look at kind of similar examples in the past, look at processes in the past over however long and try and apply them to what's going to happen in the future and see, is there a trajectory here that already happening? Is there uh, some kind of applicable process that we can observe and think that will be repeated again in this this new situation? Um, But having said that, I think our kind of concepts of collapse, I think my concept of collapse is always a little out of whack. It's always a bit day after tomorrow. It's always a little, you know, everything Everything collapses all at once, and suddenly we're mad-maxing it out in the desert or whatever. Which, um, don't get me wrong, would be a fantastic life to live. Um, so, and we've tried to, in our conversations and in, in in the book, we've kind of thought through a different kind of collapse, a kind of more uneven collapse, a slower collapse, one that kind of happens almost without us noticing, I suppose. So yeah, it's important. Yeah, and I just wondered if you could like briefly sketch out what that what that collapse looked like so we, we give a list of phenomena
0: um in, in the book somewhere uh, possibly at the beginning uh like in uh, yeah i think actually exactly in the beginning uh where we talk about the different kinds of things that could uh that could happen um and it's a list so you will hate it but uh, i'm going to read it out because i like lists yeah so it's about the it's about the pandemic um It says, the pandemic provided a glimpse into possible political responses to future climate breakdown. Past responses to climate crises, such as extreme weather events, have been shot through with environmental racism and state violence, but the scale of total transformation implied by the word fascism would have been hyperbole. Long imagined in disaster movie style as a series of blazing hot summers and polar bears adrift, all punctuated by the occasional cloud wave, it suddenly seemed to us that climate systems breakdown might actually look much more like the pandemic did. Mass death events, sudden stresses on global supply chains, abrupt and previously unthinkable changes to everyday life, massive discrepancies in vulnerability across class and racial groups, a generally increased anxiety, racially displaced blame, the tightening of surveillance regimes, a sudden return to governments acting exclusively and aggressively in their national and class interests, the mainstreaming of conspiracy culture, talk of the end of globalisation, A retreat to protectionism, unprecedented measures that suddenly seemed entirely necessary, the sudden collapse of livelihoods for billions of the world's poor, and a deep economic shock worldwide. That's obviously quite a fast collapse. So, like, you know, the the, the period of the pandemic is like from, uh, you know, kind of December, late December, by April 2020, uh, pretty much all those things have happened. And lots of them continue to happen, obviously. Um, there continue to be mass death events. There continue to be uh, global shocks. They continue to be you know, conspiracy cultures. There continue to be racially based blame. So it all, it's all happening still. So it's not like it's kind of gone away. But all those things suddenly happened very rapidly. The only thing I can think of, kind of of equivalent scale, apart from another pandemic, which is, of course, let's face it, entirely possible, um, would be a market, would be a, um, a food, uh, a, a global um Food shortage, um, which might take the form of kind of an absolute uh, food shortage. That's very unlikely, though. It's very unlikely, um, at least in the short term. It's not unlikely over the long term, but it's unlikely in the short term. There'll be an absolute food shortage. That is, there is not enough calories for everyone in the world to to eat. The point you made about um the collapse happening without us noticing is is very very important as well. Of course, the book is mostly about ecofascism. That is, it's mostly about authoritarian politics. Um, and writing authoritarian politics with like that, we give a more subtle and nuanced definition of fascism in the book. But what I mean by that, what I think is important about that, is that the is that the the, the measures we're seeing at the moment um, brought in the UK, the capacity for people to be stripped of citizenship, the capacity of people to be um, arbitrarily detained, uh, arrested, making protest essentially a crime. These are the kinds of things that. A regime that is expecting an enormous amount of social disruption does. These are the kind of things that regimes that are predicting for the future. And the British government, despite their extraordinary competence in lots of ways, are very committed to long-term planning. They, they do have long-term plans. Um, hundreds of years. Like This is not, <laughs> I mean, not perhaps the government as such, but the like civil civil service, right, does do this kind of thing. Um, That's a very uh, kind of... Uh, surprising and a strange book by Gwyn Dyer um uh which is about uh geopolitics in a hot world uh, i forgot the name of the book but it's yeah it's, it's a it's it's a, it's a, it's it's mostly based on uh uk government predictions about what might happen and the, the way in which their current uh policies play into that so i would not be surprised if if current encroaching authoritarianism in the uk was understood by at least some people in the government to be relevant for climate Persistence breakdown. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, it's entirely possible we could miss the signs or being focused as quote unquote anti fascists on particular forms of far authoritarianism, that is, the, the mass basis ones, the ones that are attached to extra, extra legal violence, um, like fascism always, ha- always has been. By focusing on those ones, we miss the very real very substantial forms of encroachment of exactly the kind of thing. That prepares the ground for later forms of uh, far authoritarianism, um, like ecofascism. Um,
1: so, yeah. I think also this is why thinking about empire is so useful here again, is because these kinds of differentiation between who gets rights to citizenship and who doesn't, uh, these kind of uh, uh, the ordering of people into different groups and all these kinds of things are kind of very kind of familiar ones for someone who studies the history of empire uh, as well. And it's it, it is sometimes useful to think about empire coming home in many ways, not in the classic um, sense of fascism is empire, uh, colonialism come home, but also in a sense of this kind of ordering of people, um, uh, this kind of um, encroachment of, of, of the state into aspects of life that wasn't previously there, this kind of changing of people into kind of model citizens on an authoritarian way is, uh, I think, quite redolent of um, imperial imperial strategies for control. So we haven't really talked much about anti-fascism and collapse, which I think it is quite important to talk about, like how useful is an anti-fascist politics in a a degrading or a world that is about to completely fall apart Um, and how we kind of think through how we connect that to other kind of struggles as well. Um, I I often think there's a kind of um, quite a crude fusion, which maybe we even indulged in before, it's like oh, green anti-fascism is just anti-fascism but we also care about oil drilling or anti-fascism but we also like try and sabotage uh, Shell whatever and it seems like this is another example of a kind of anti-farization of all kind of political activity by some sections of of the radical scenes radical left in that everything has to be viewed through uh, the anti-fascist mode of doing politics whether that's housing solidarity or it is Um, anti-racist struggles or it is environmental struggles. I I don't think that's particularly a useful way of doing things because obviously fascism is a very highly particular, anti-fascism is a highly particular politics and has a certain use in a certain context. And outside of that context is is highly um, unuseful and in fact quite detrimental. So I wondered how we can incorporate uh, kind of anti-fascist strategy in these kind of wider struggles that are involved in that people are involved in. Whether we need to, um, or whether is, is anti fascism something that we end up falling back to when there is a threat to um, our other movements. And therefore we need to kind of sound the alarm and break out the balaclavas and get out on the streets or whatever. Or is it something that's happening all the time? I've laid out a lot of things there, I'm sorry. But okay, let's it's, go. it's trying to work it out in my head as well.
0: Yeah, so I, um, it really depends. Um, uh, which is an unhelpful answer. But the maybe like w- in-, in addition to, uh, fashion being a very particular thing, it's also a very geographically differentiated thing. Um, there can be movements uh, that are far right in France, uh, and not simultaneously movements uh, that are of comparable form or strength, and so on in, say, the Netherlands. I- that's increasingly less the case because of the internet, because of the international internationalizing tendency of the far right. But I think it's, it's possible for there to be like very, very highly distinct local uh, things. Um, one of the things that, for example, uh, the book White Skin, Black Fuel does very well is, uh, this is by Andreas on the Zetkin Collective. We had um, Lise Benoit and Andreas on to talk through uh, their book uh, to interview with them as well. Um, and in this series about collapse, which we're talking about now, I will also be interviewing uh, Andreas again. So the um, – and we'll be interviewing, I should say, on this podcast, Lise Benoit um, in, in the new year. So one thing they talk about is the, in some ways, like useful convergence of – not useful because it's good, it's very bad, but it's, it's useful because it, it tactically simplifies things. You know, climate denialists conscript, essentially – foreign actors to do their to do their work. Right. This is not an unfamiliar story. It's happened before, uh particularly happened in the US. Earlier I mentioned that they uh groups like the Three Percenters, uh, which are kind of militia patriot group and so on. Um in, in the US, that they have been uh, kind of involved in doing security and involved with local law enforcement in pushing through uh, the uh, construction of pipelines uh, for shale oil drilling in the US, right? And in this case, we can say well, there's very clearly a relationship here between um, the fossil fuel industry and the far right. They are kind of the same thing in this particular case, and therefore it's very obvious that the uh, skills of anti-fascists in engaging the far right will be useful here. Other than those particular cases, I think that there's a broader sense that antifascism is quite useful in part because it's a deeply pessimistic politics. Um antifascism is the um uh to give a completely absurd analogy, right? like anti-fascism is the A and E of politics, of left wing politics, right? It's the um you don't no one no one leaves A and E like Thrive, who is no no one leaves it like radically okay like <laughs> everyone who is in it is an AE, um like you prevent them from dying uh or you prevent them from being seriously unwell or whatever it is you're trying to uh, prevent them from and then you kind of discharge them often back to a gp um uh in the, in the uk at least and, and 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 then they are they're kind of made better or kind of made like thriving after that point um And so anti-fascism is, no one is ever released from anti-fascism or kind of, um, anti-fascism does not produce a better world. What it does is prevent the worst thing from happening. Um, Yeah. And and so I think in collapse, because the kind of maybe signal gesture of collapse, or the signal thing that we could take from a kind of a philosophy of collapse and like that, is that there is no one agent capable of holding society together anymore, right? It's a it's a catabolic process. It's a process of degrading. It's a process of, of social uh, processes kind of unspooling. No one is able to hold the center, you know, the famous WB8 line, the center, the center cannot hold, right? That's what collapse kind of is. And therefore, in some ways, anti-fascist because it's so pessimistic as a politics. It doesn't aim for a wonderful world. It just aims for the worst thing not to happen. Uh, it's very risk averse in that sense, but it's not particularly productive. In that sense, they're both actually quite similar politics, right? Um, Preventing collapse, preventing fascism, existing within collapse, you know, and so on. They're in some ways quite similar because they don't require a world transformative agent. All they require is like that the immediate problem be dealt with. Um, so there are there are analogies there between the two things, but ultimately, I think it's just, uh, I, I don't see much utility for anti-fascism in
1: in, in understanding collapse. When the, tell us about the about, tell us a bit about the series. When's it coming out? How far along with you producing it? Um, do you say things that I wouldn't want? Yes, yeah, associated so, um,
0: with. I, I, yeah, I, I say a lot of things that you wouldn't want to be associated with. That's why I'm doing it separately. Um, no, I, I, I've recorded a few, a few episodes. Uh, I've done an interview with with a guy called Guy Middleton, who is a um, uh, archaeologist who works on uh, the collapse of the late Bronze Age um, and the kind of that deep time. Has very interesting things to say about the way in which we understand collapse. Uh, from a kind of social perspective about how we understand elite institutions in the past and how they how they kind of show up in the archaeological record in a way that other things don't. We've interviewed uh Jairus Grove, who wrote a book called um Savage Ecology and so on. And it's all being done with a kind of a team of um, anonymous people. And when's it coming out? Uh sometime in January twenty twenty
1: two. Okay. And we'll be hustling it on the Twelve Rules The first few
0: episodes will be on will be on the on the on the 12 Rules stream. And then yeah. Um the rest will, I guess, not be. Okay. Depends. Depends how offensive uh, the things I say.
1: Well, I'll be, I won't be vetting. So you know, <laughs> you can just slip an N word in there and we'll be ruined. Don't for that N. <laughs> Don't for that. Okay, and um, I suppose we're finishing up now. There's a few more announcements. Um, we'll be going on another mini tour of the UK fairly soon. Maybe in February. We'll be in almost definitely will be in Bristol and you'll probably try and get to a few more places as well, including London. Um, so just look out for those kind of announcements and we'll be putting them on our social media as well. We've also got a book, another book coming out, Climate Change in the Far Right, The Rise of Ecofascism the other way around. Um, it's coming out in April or March 2022, um, but you'll start to see promo about that pretty soon because we've got a bunch of articles to write to promote it. And our email is filling up with unresponded emails which we need to reply to. Um, so, you know, self-crit right there. Um, <laughs> it's not quite a
0: struggle session, is it? But it's uh, it's fine. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson,
1: host of Coffee with Comrades. Coffee with Comrades is rooted in militant joy. Our hope is to cultivate a warm and inviting atmosphere, like walking into your favorite coffee shop to sit down with some of your close friends and share
0: a heart-to-heart conversation. New episodes premiere every Tuesday, so be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast so that you never miss an episode. We are proud to be a part of the Channel Zero Network.
1: rules. <laughs>